0: All right, I want to invite you to turn over one page in your bulletin to our sermon text. And if you have a Bible, then you are welcome to open up to Romans chapter 10. And I am immediately starting off this morning with regret because I wish I had printed for you all the way back starting in 9 verse 30. I didn't, is never not to overlap with what Will has said, but we're kind of picking up here in the middle of a section. Um, so I will point out a few things in a verse, few verses prior to what um, you have printed in your worship folder, but if you have your own Bible, that's just a heads up, so it might be a little bit helpful um, if you would like to look back. Let me, uh, this has been a long journey as we have gone through the books of Romans and Genesis. If you've been around for a little while, then you would know that, and it's been a lot of wonderful things. Let me just catch us up before I read the passage where we are. So in the first eight chapters of Romans, then Paul meticulously and gloriously walks through the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of what has already happened in Israel with the Jewish people and as the way to salvation for sinners, those who are far off and separated from God, um, and the life that he gives in Christ and the Holy Spirit um, as well there at the end. And then we get to this section of chapters 9 through 11, which we've gone through the last couple of weeks, which is addressing a particular problem that we need to understand uh, so that we can understand our chapter. And that is this. What do we do about Israel, ethnic Israel, the people who have been God's people for thousands of years at this point who are God's special chosen people and yet not all of them have believed in Christ and in some ways it seems like God has done this little juke move that he had one set of standards here and now he's changed the whole game and because of that then his special people are now have to play by different rules so it seems on a little bit shaky ground And that's really, that's a challenge. And Paul wants to dive into this because what's at stake here is the dependability of God and what he has revealed. Is God the kind of God that is straightforward, that communicates clearly, that tells us what he requires of us? Or is he the kind of God that kind of throws something in in the back door that might make us unsure, even of ourselves? Like, is he that kind of God? So Paul starts in chapter 9 by looking at God's sovereignty and his election and his own wisdom and how he actually uses and has used throughout history not the talented, not those that should have gotten blessing, but he has actually chosen those like Jacob who should not have in order to display that God has a message here for sinners, that uh, others... In all types, in all places of history that come undeserving, that God actually has proclaimed that through those that he has chosen. Um, So we see that God is, what God is in chapter 9, what God is doing behind the scenes through his, in his own infinite wisdom, through those he draws to himself and those he doesn't so that he can proclaim the gospel. But now, as we transition to chapter 10, then we're looking less about what's going on behind the stage, behind the scenes to what is actually happening on stage. And that God's movement is not something that is just an eternal mystery, but that he has actually communicated himself clearly. And that the, those that he has called to himself has actually worked out through their own choices in one way or another that we can see. And so this is what we're going to um, look at, is this idea, this problem of the things we can actually see about, go, about religious zeal and what zeal is placed in. So with that introduction, let's go to our passage and read. I'll read um, chapter 10, starting in verse 1, and go all the way through verse 13. This is God's Word. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we dive in. Dear Father, this is Your Word that You have given to us. And yet, as we grapple with it for one reason or another, whether it's unpacking, trying to understand what Paul is saying, or whether it's the motivations of our hearts that are lurking underneath, we really struggle. And we need You to help us. We pray that You would send Your Spirit, that You would help Your Word, what You want to be preached, to come out and to be clear even through a very weak and often confused vessel. But in addition to that, we ask that you would prick our hearts, that you would draw out what lies in there that we might not want to see, that we would actually be able to deal with it in light of Jesus so that we might be free in him. We trust you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I said, this is... I think what we have here is a problem of misplaced zeal. And how am I get that? Paul starts off by saying he bears witness to his people, that is the Israelites, that they have a lot of religious zeal. They are very committed, sincere people, but they're actually ignorant. And their zeal is not directed in the right place. And I think if we think about this, we we know that zeal is not enough on its own. It's actually important what our sincerity is devoted to. And just one example that came to my mind, I really like to play trivia. Um, And by play trivia, I mean I really like to be on trivia teams with people who are good at trivia so that I can thrive in their wake. Um, And I'll sit back and agree with other people and um, you know, I'll chip in my little piece of knowledge every once in a while. But I vividly remember the one time that I was the most zealous. Like, I know exactly the answer to this question. And to give you some context, the way the rules work is you're getting five questions, and before giving the answers, you have to sign each of them. Five points for this answer, four for this one, three, two, and one. So the one you're most confident in, you give a five, and the one you're least confident in, you give a one. So that way, if you miss it, you only lose one point. So the rest of the team was like, we're pretty sure, but three at best. And my response was, I'm very sure and anything less than a five would be totally foolish. Like, yeah, I know this. Like, Because of these reasons, I know the answer to this question. And of course, I'm sure you figured out by now, it was dead wrong. <laughs> um, you don't want to play trivia with me is the lesson of the story, um, but it matters. So commitment to something, all on its own, it doesn't actually get you anywhere unless the thing that we're committed to is actually the right thing. And Paul is bringing out this question head on, and that so that is a simple, uh, non-monumental um, example. There might be there was certainly some shame that came as a result of missing a trivia question, but this is actually a deep, deep issue. Um, what do we do with sincere people? What do we do with people that are sincere about very different things? What do we do with um, our own sincerity and our own confidence? So we're starting to wade here into waters that are immediately tricky and they're a little bit murky. And there are so many questions that this can bring up, and this is a great... Um, I, we are going to look at this through the lens of Israel... So we are particularly going to look through this through the lens of religious zeal, particularly as it pertains to God's law, because that's the example that um, Paul is giving us in Israel. But there are so many questions about this, and it's a really relevant topic. This would be a great thing to unpack in your community groups if you would like to, to talk about zeal, um, to talk about um, why it's important for it to be directed correctly, um, and the anxiety that that might create in you. As you think about yourselves and think about others. So that's just a little nugget throwing out there if you would like something to um, discuss. Um, So here's the question again and coming back with Israel is that so Israel is in a situation where they have been God's chosen people. They have been given his law. They have been given the requirement um, by God to be in relationship with him. And as Paul is preaching this gospel, in one way, to them at least, and maybe to others, it sounds like the rules are changing. And so there is a lot, there is a lot at stake. This is a how do you um, get in a right relationship with God. How do you get righteousness is one thing that is at stake here. Another thing that is at stake is, is God dependable? Has he clearly communicated how to be in right relationship with God or are we kind of left in a little bit mystery? Are we guessing? Here's the problem that we're after and I want to look at this in two ways. All that to get us in the, in the right mindset and I kind of want to follow Paul's pattern here is that first we're going to look at human misuse of God's law in their zeal so I want to unpack that and look at how that they are misusing it and why, um, and maybe in some ways and how um, they might should know better. We should know better. Second, God's faithfulness to his law is the second point. As Paul is going to argue that rather than being a different story here, that this is very much part of the same story, and that God, rather than juking the Israelites out, he is actually answering the deep-seated um, questions that the law has been bringing up special to them, to their people. And then the last thing will be, how should we respond? So we'll have some application throughout, but if I'll save a little bit of application there for the end. So in the first place, human misuse of God's law. Let me say a quick word about what is God's law, what I mean by that. And that is, we're talking about Israel, so we're talking about what God has revealed to Israel to be in right relationship with God. And that means a lot of things. And it essentially is the totality of what God has said that is a requirement to be in relationship with him. That includes morality and ethics, the things he has said to do or to not do. That includes the religious ceremonies of making sacrifices, going through ritual washing so that you can be... Ritually clean It involves the feasts All of these kinds of things that God has said Is that We're looking, when I say God's law Then this is not just the Ten Commandments This is the totality of God's instruction Of what it means to be in Right relationship with Him So first off How is this being misused Um, And if you will If you have your Bibles look back here um, talking about the Gentiles, he says there's this issue, the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. Who do not, did not pursue righteousness, they have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, so it is supposed to lead Israel to righteousness in some way, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith as if it were based on works. And that as if is important. So Paul is saying that it was given for a particular reason, but Israel is actually using it in a way. um, Not all Israel, but the ones who um, do not have faith in Christ are using it in a way it was not intended. They're using it as if it was intended for something else. And that is to make oneself righteous through good works. That is, if we do good works, if we do enough good, if we follow the law enough, then we will be righteous and we will be in right relationship with God. God will have to accept us, okay? And he, in a way, he says something else in chapter 10, verse 3, which you see there in your worship folder, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, so what's the point here? The point is that Israel has missed the point. Is that being ignorant of what the law was actually given for, they've twisted it. And they are using it in a way to build up their own righteousness by works rather than to actually achieve this kind of righteousness of God that Paul is talking about, which we're going to unpack here in a little bit. But let me stop there is Isn't that what laws are for, though? Like, aren't we given laws so they can be kept. I mean, if you think about this in a civil sense, that if you do, if you keep the law, then you're in good terms with the state or with the nation. If you don't, you're not. Um, so is that a little bit confusing here, that why would God even give these laws if that they were not to be kept um, and to achieve some kind of standing through them? What do we have to say about that? If you look on down to verse 5, then Paul, what Paul is going to do is he's going to pit two things against each other. We're starting with the first, about Moses against Moses. He's quoting Leviticus here, he's going to quote Deuteronomy here in a second. And he's presenting us with a caricature, caricature of this use of the law. Now he says this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And that's he's saying this. He's luring us in to say we might think that the laws were given in order to make us righteous, but if we pay attention, then I think we can figure out that that's not actually the full purpose of why they were given. And that is here, he says, if you're going to do that, let's try that on for size, shall we? If you are going to depend on the law to be righteous in God's sight then what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to actually live by that law, meaning you're going to have to keep it, and your blessings or curses are going to come depending on how well you keep it or how well you don't keep it. So that's the master that you've chosen. Here's the thing about the law. The righteousness that the law demands is not pretty good, but it's a total thing. Like James 2.10 even says that one, if you're accountable for one part, you're accountable for the whole thing. So if you're going to do this, then you're going to have to keep the whole thing with absolutely no mistakes. That's one of the best illustrations of this. I'm going to steal from my dad, but look at it through my vantage point. So my dad really likes to drink water just filled with lemons in the summertime. Any of you like that? I mean, he's got like three and four lemon wedges cut up and put in his water. Um, growing up, so when you're done, you have the lemon rind and you dump them out in the garbage disposal and the garbage disposal cuts them up. Our garbage disposal wouldn't do that. All it would do is it would spin and it would gum them into this lemony goo and it would end up clogging up the whole thing. And the only one that actually had small enough hands to fix it was my mom who had to stick her hand down in the goo and pull out all of the gooed up lemons that were put in the garbage disposal. So a law was formed no more putting lemons in the garbage disposal. Okay? So days would go by, my dad would, you know, drink his water, his lemons, and then sure enough, a few days later, my mom would say, Who put a lemon in the garbage disposal? as if the issue was in question. Um, I guess she just wanted everyone to know. (laughs) Um, And my dad would say something like, well, I've thrown 12 lemons in the trash can. Like, I've been doing a really good job throwing the lemons in the trash can. Just one slipped out. But what would my mom say? But I still have to stick my hand in the garbage disposal and pull it out, even if you put in one. The law is not that you put most of the lemons in the trash, but that you put all of the lemons in the trash. It's either all or none. So Paul is saying, if you take this up for yourself, then you're actually going to have to keep the entire thing without missing one. Is that really the master that you want over you? That means if you look at your life and your own conscience and the things that have happened before that you've done, it only takes one, only one little one, and we're accountable to the whole thing. That's bad enough as it is, but when we think about this, there's one step further that Paul's drawing us, our attention to, and that is this idea of God's righteousness. That what they're ignorant of is God's righteousness, And that is, there's two sides of that. One, that the righteousness that God gives, which we'll look at in the second point. But the reason he gives it is because there is a righteousness of who God is in himself, in his own character. That what the law is actually asking, showing us, is not a checkbox of what you have to do so that you can feel good and have a relationship with God. But it is actually asking for a qualitative change. Not that you just keep these things, but that you are like God. God is showing through the law himself. This is what he is like. This is how much he is just. This is how much he is good. This is how much he is wise. Keeping laws can't do that. I mean, just another illustration. Um, You know, you could pick anybody who's good at anything. We'll just pick Michael Jordan just because he's famous. If Michael Jordan did a basketball class for you, and he taught you all the skills of basketball, like how to shoot correctly, hold your elbow, strategy, whatever, you'd better follow what he says, because that's how you play basketball, and it's good basketball. Like if you don't do that, then you're not really playing good basketball. But does doing what Michael Jordan says make you Michael Jordan? No. Not even close. And that's not, that's not like the purpose of doing this. Like That this, his greatness, he is actually giving and he is demonstrating to those peons like us who don't really know what good basketball is. So what God is actually requiring of us, if we actually choose to live by the laws, not only that we keep the whole thing, but that we actually change and become like God. And here's the hard part about this. If that is the case, Israel should have known this all along. This is not a juke. What is built into Israel's law is that there are sacrifices again and again and again and again and again and again. Every year, even if you sacrifice perfectly, there's a day of atonement. That there has to be atonement made for you to become like God. In addition to this, let's take David as an example. David, being the king, his main job was to model what it is like to keep the law. And what does he say over and over and over again? My sins are ever before me. There is no one righteous, not even one. That God does not deal with me according to my sins, but he has removed my sins from the east and the west. It has been clear all along. What the law screams by showing us God is that we need mercy. The main thing we need from God is not more instructions, it is mercy. So then he's, Paul's going to make a shift. So he's actually putting it back on Israel. If you think about this, then we can actually see that this way doesn't work. That's not what the law is really given for. How is it given? Well, he goes on in verse 6, and he says, he's going to argue for us that rather than being mysterious, God has actually been incredibly faithful through his law to provide a way for people to become in relationship with them. What does he say here? A lot of weird stuff, he says, but the law, where that's the law of Moses, the law of faith says this stuff like, who will, then who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, who will descend into the abyss, That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Uh, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Here's weird about this. First of all, he's quoting a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 30, which says almost the same thing, where God says to Israel, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heavens, who will travel across the sea to find out what it is that God requires of us, because God has given it to you. And he is referring to the law. God's point is that he has made known that his requirements through the law, they're clear. They're not mysterious. You don't have to meditate. You don't have to be superhuman. He has brought them right here close. close. So how does that relate to Christ? So Christ, what Paul is saying here is that this is God's requirement as fully revealed in the law. And this up and down stuff, all is, he's talking about is that Christ has been revealed and he has been made known to you. It's like, so we might say, shall I ascend to the top of the roof to get the Frisbee down, parenthesis, so as to bring it down so that we can have the Frisbee. Shall I ascend to the bottom of the pool to get the Frisbee, that is to bring it up so we can have it. He's saying that just as the law was clear that Christ, through his resurrection and through this message that Paul has reclaimed, that he has made known that there is a different way to become righteous other than keeping the law that is actually more in line with what the law has for us, and that is Christ. And that at the end of the day, when we see this about ourselves and we are convicted by the law, and we are brought to that place to say what I need before God is mercy, not more instructions, what are we poised to see when this message about Christ comes? is that is it. This is it. This is what it has been about all along. This is why God entered in relationship with people. This is why we had to keep doing those sacrifices over and over and over again as if an animal could somehow take away my sin. That God has proven himself, despite the sinfulness of his people, faithful by sending the answer to what Israel was all about, and that is Christ. So Christ is the end of the law, as in He has kept it perfectly. He, being God Himself, just as righteous as God, has come down. And He has given that kind of righteousness that we could never achieve. Christ is the Son of God. He is righteous. He has come and He has given it. He has made made known to us um, so that we can see it and we can depend on it. This is the answer to the whole story. This is what it has actually been about. We can see it, it makes sense. We can depend on it. That is the only way. Rather than make a different way, God has been faithful to his law. And so what does that do for us? That If it is impossible for us to keep the law, if the requirement is too high, but if God has through his son Jesus Christ been revealed another way, then he is opening the door for us for zeal to be placed in the way, the one place where it can actually be effective. He has shown us the right thing in Christ. That zeal in submitting to his righteousness that he has earned and given to us, that is the object of our affection, that is the object of our desires, that is the object of our zeal. How, what does this mean for us, real quickly? I just want to acknowledge as we apply this in closing that this is likely to hit us in in several very different ways as we grapple with what it means. If you go on, then Paul says here these wonderful statements that rather than works, our response to this in general terms is to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that Christ is risen from the dead, which are not separate things. This is just a, he's illustrating a wholehearted turning and dependence upon Christ for righteousness rather than on our own. A righteousness that is based on his character and his finished work in the resurrection that he has given to us. But what he is asking for us is this at the end, that we would call upon the name of the Lord, a worship term. We would turn our hearts to him in worship. The point of all of this is worship. And there might be some in the room who come from from this position. Some of us I know... Um, are sitting here and we are really racked with guilt. You know, you lay in your bed at night and there's that twinge of anxiety. Um, knowing what you've done, knowing what your life is like, what your habits are, like, can this is this really the behavior of a Christian? Here's the issue with this. If that in one way, while it is commendable, To look at God's righteousness for what it is. It is still a dependence on the law for you to be righteous. If you're going to play that game, you're going to have to keep the entire thing. But God has made another way. He has given Christ for you. He has sent him so that you can see him. That you, despite what you know is true with you, that he is not asking of you, for your own perfection, He is asking for your worship and your submission to His righteousness. That He can be righteous for you. That you would give up on righteousness for yourself. Some, other, some others of us might have more of a defeatist mentality. Like, you know what? I know I'm not right. I know I mess up all the time. I get stressed. I yell. I'm doing the best I can. I'm glad God did this because, you know, there's no way that, I don't even pretend like I'm righteous. um, But I'm just going to go about my business, do whatever, because if he didn't do that, then I'm toast. It's kind of a give up. And the message, how this applies to this is this, is that our perfection before God is not the point if our attitude is to give up because we see we can't do it then I think we have misunderstood what it means to even be in relationship with God who is righteous it's not to be like him it's to worship him it's to give up on ourselves and to look to him and to call out for him that I could have what you can only give if we can only be in relationship with God based on how well we do then we can't be in relationship with him. If that means giving up, then we might as well give up completely. But God has made another way. And lastly, some of us are this. You might have heard this again and again and again and again. In a lot of ways, these are the basics of the gospel. As you sit here and listen to this, I suspect some of us are just dry. Like, we've heard this so much that it doesn't register. I wish it did. I wish I had more of a conviction um, about how righteous God is and how good his gift is for me. But here's the last point that I want to make. Even there, God gives his blessings based on Jesus. He is the source of not only righteousness, but he goes on to say that because being righteous before God and there that all who call on the name of the Lord and be saved, he bestows the riches on all who call on him. There's only one source. There's only one solution for that dryness. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your fervor. It doesn't depend on your emotions trying to get in the right place. It is totally dependent on Christ. And if Christ has been revealed, he has given himself to you such, then he cares about you. He does. He's not waiting for you to get your chi right. God is tirelessly working to give you blessings through Jesus Christ. All these ways of departing are essentially of looking at ourselves and not on God. And the point of all of this is rather than look to ourselves for our own righteousness, our own wills, our own despair, whatever, ourselves is a poor object to place our zeal. But Paul is presenting for us that he has provided a true object that can actually deliver, that is much more worth giving our zeal, our lives, our attitudes, our emotions, and that is Jesus Christ. If Christ has been revealed, then the way to righteousness before him and the place to direct our zeal is not mysterious. It has been made clear, and more than clear, it is good. Let's pray that the Spirit would use this and He would actually um, work it in in places where He might need to. Dear Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Your commitment to us um, however we are when we approach You. We ask that You would not leave us, that You would use Your Spirit that as confused as we are, as busy as we are, as distracted as we are, Is tired. that you really would open up our hearts and you would sink in the good news of the gospel, that you would give rest to those of us that need rest, you would give hope to those that need hope, you would give assurance of righteousness to those of us who are really struggling, and that you would give true, wholehearted worship to those of us who would rather direct our worship somewhere else. Only you can do this work, and so we ask that you would in your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.